Along the Mohawk River Valley in Johnstown, New York, Walmart has set up a distribution center. It processes about 50,000 pallets of merchandise every week. On one morning in 2017, a forklift operator was pulling a pallet off of the top shelf of their stack, stackable system and knocked an adjacent pallet off of its location, spilling contents of that pallet down to the ground in the aisle, one aisle over. The contents of the box, crescent rolls, fell 50 feet, and some of them fell on the head, shoulders, and neck of a, an employee who was picking merchandise on the ground floor of the aisle uh, next, next over, causing serious injury. OSHA conducted a, an inspection and issued a citation for improper stacking of material. Walmart challenged the case and lost before an administrative law judge and appealed to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, where they prevailed and had the citation vacated. OSHA appealed to the Second Circuit. We'll discuss the Second Circuit's decision and its impact on the employer community. I'm Manish Rath, and you're a party to the October 19, 2022 episode of the OSHA 33rd. Welcome, everyone. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and I'm a practicing attorney in the field of occupational safety and health law, among other areas of law, an area of law that I've practiced for almost all of my 26 years of practice. And I'm very fortunate today. So I'm joined by my good friend and colleague here at Keller and Heckman, attorney Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome to the OSHA 3030. Pleasure to be here, Manish, as always. Thanks for having me. Well, Taylor, as you know, we've got a great subject today because it goes to a fact or a process that exists in many workplaces. The entirety of the transportation industry, distribution, warehousing, retail, particularly large box retail, faces the kind of hazards associated with the facts in this case. So let's talk first about what we're going to talk about today. Sure. That's absolutely right, Manish. Very important case. So we'll start by going through the, the background of the incident. Next, we'll discuss OSHA's subsequent investigation of the incident. We'll review both the uh, ALJ, the Administrative Law Judge's decision, as well as the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission's decision. And then, most importantly, we'll go over the Second Circuit's ruling in this case. We'll then wrap it up with practical takeaway action items so folks can bring them back to their workplace. And uh, this program is recorded so that we can rebroadcast it as a podcast and as a video housed on our website and YouTube. Uh, so after we're done today, we'll turn off the recordings and we'll go off the record uh, just for our participants in our live webinar today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think we have at least a couple of questions and, and folks who are attending the live program can use the chat function or the question and answer function uh, and, and type in any questions as they come up as well. And we'll try and address those at the end for live participants only here on October 19th. So let's go ahead and get into it. Well, as I mentioned, Walmart has a very large distribution center in Johnstown, New York. And the system it uses is called selective racking. Pallets of merchandise are placed on selective racking back to back. These stacked shelving, I would call them shelving, but they're not really, and I'll explain in a moment, go up 50 feet high. 
So an enormous volume under this distribution center. The shelving is really more like a scaffolding when you look at it. It is cross-beam railing, and the pallets form the shelving uh, that goes across the one beam to another. And, and they use forklifts to raise and lower merchandise. The very lowest level is, is the pick level uh, where product is picked, and then the levels above that are where reserve merchandise is stored. Well, that's right, Manish. And each racking system is placed directly on top of each other. Uh, this leaves a 42-inch gap under each pallet. And as we'll discuss, uh, this 42-inch gap becomes a critical fact in this case. Yeah, and Taylor, as, as we mentioned, they go up 50 feet high. And so when right. something falls, it doesn't have to be a hard or heavy object. Falling from 50 feet, it'll do some damage. And that's, I think, a, a really critical factor here in terms of the employer's mandate to make sure that they're, they're engaging these operations safely. That's right. And, and the merchandise is, is unloaded, as we mentioned, you know, through aisles um, in between stacked pallets. And then on the upper shelves, it's replaced and retrieved using forklifts. Right. And so the, the shelving system has two sides to it, and the back side is facing another aisle. And the front side product is accessed by a forklift. To get the material behind that, a forklift need only go around to the other aisle because it's only two pallets deep. Well, on February 25th in 2017, an employee in the distribution center was working on the ground floor, working at the pick level, ground floor level. And that's when product from the highest shelf fell, being knocked over by a pallet operation by a forklift operator in the aisle one over. And the material, in this case, it was uh, crescent rolls, fell 50 feet, and some of it fell in between the shelves, some of it fell in between the rails, uh, but some of it also fell on top of this employee, uh, causing serious injury. That's right. The employee was diagnosed with long-term damage uh, to her neck and spine. And in the case of, an, uh, you know, investigating this, it, it turned out that the, there was an employee who was retrieving a pallet from the highest level of racking with the forklift um, that was inadvertently pushed into a pallet. And then one of the pallets fell off the racking. So that's why it was, you know, it fell it fawned some 40 to 50 feet. So Taylor, OSHA comes in and they conduct an investigation. Employees who were interviewed, they admitted that products had regularly fallen through storage racks and landed in, in the aisles, not just in between the railings, but also had some of it had fallen into the aisles and there could have been an employee below. Uh, my recollection, though, is that managers interviewed had testified that it was uh, very uncommon that this was not a problem. But one manager, the general manager of the facility, did state that he was aware of the possibility and had asked for authority to install monetary authority, funding authority to, to install some, some safeguard at the higher shelving so that product wouldn't fall into the aisle. And that, that testimony was used, introduced by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration as evidence of, of knowledge. Yeah, that's a great point. So OSHA conducts its investigation. Um, they, they end up issuing a citation in this case um, for exposing employees to being struck by unstable material storage. We'll get into the specific standard that Walmart in this case was cited under in a minute. And then OSHA issues a penalty, a financial penalty as well, um, $10,864. It's interesting. The penalty amount is certainly not significant enough 
right. to undergo the effort and expense of defending themselves before an administrative law judge, appealing to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, and then preparing briefs and maybe oral arguments. I don't recommend for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. All of that effort and expense would eclipse the penalty amount, proposed penalty amount of $10,864. The problem is that the abatement implied by the citation would have been necessarily all through the distribution center and potentially nationwide. And that is a very large scale implementation of abatement when you're talking about the nation's number one or two largest employer in terms of employees. So that, that presents a significant challenge. Taylor, you'd mentioned the standard on, under which OSHA issued their citation. Yeah, that's right. So this is the materials handling and storage standard. This can be found at 29 CFR 1910-176, and in particular, subsection B. Uh, so it states that first, the first part of it states that the storage of material um, shall not create a hazard. That's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> but it also goes on to state that bags, containers, bundles shall, that are stored in tiers shall be stacked or blocked, right. interlocked. I assume that there's a disjunctive in between these. It doesn't say that, though. But the way, only sensible way to read it is stacked or blocked or interlocked so that they are stable and secure against sliding or collapse and limited in height so that they are stable and secure against sliding or collapse. But I will candidly share that that is just what I think is the most sensible way to read this, and it is not patent on the face of the standard. What the standard says is that material that's stored in tiers shall be stacked, blocked, interlocked, and limited in height, implying that you have to do all of those such that they are stable and secure against sliding or collapse. That's right. And, and the key phrase here, um, you know, as we'll discuss, is, is stored in tiers. Um, and so therefore, for the standard to apply and, and you know, at every level that, you know, the ALJ, the Review Commission and the Second Circuit, this is discussed for the standard to apply, the materials must be both one stored and two in tiers. And each side in this case makes certain arguments as to whether or not they think that the, the material here was actually one stored and then two stored in tiers. So there's a lot of um, sort of wordsmithing and getting into what these definitions mean. Yeah, it's true. I wouldn't have made anything of the phrase stored. Of course, we're talking about stored materials, I would think. But uh, Walmart made, in my opinion, a very interesting argument challenging even that. Taylor? Yeah, exactly. So you know, at the ALJ level, they make this argument. Essentially, Walmart argues that these pallets uh, were not stored, but instead in the process of being stored. So they try to get creative with whether or not these, these pallets were actually stored. They argue that because you know, the forklifts in this case were constantly moving the pallets, um, that they were actually you know, in the process and not technically stored. So it's certainly a creative argument. They also argue that they had work rules in place to keep employees from the forklift area. A 20-foot zone of danger is what they, they say. You know, as we'll get into, the, it, it turns out that this work rule wasn't adequately enforced, so it didn't defend Walmart here from you know, potentially using preventable employee misconduct defense. And then Walmart also um, makes the argument that, that the manager, you know, their general manager, looked into alternatives to, to, to the sort of you know, stacking and, and unloading methods that they were using here in this case. When OSHA presented his case before the administrative law judge, they had alleged that there was exposure to violative conditions. There were employees underneath on the ground floor, a ground level, when, when these kinds of loading and unloading 
restacking operations were taking place via forklift. And, and then, of course, OSHA presented evidence that they had received employee testimony that that product had fallen in the past. And so there was awareness and thereby evidence of knowledge that this was a allegedly hazardous condition. I think this is interesting. The, the debate about knowledge doesn't actually get addressed, but the evidence was presented. And, and OSHA presented what it believed was and our assertion that there was feasible means of abating this. That's right, Manish. So the, the ALJ hears both sides' arguments in this case and ends up ruling that the standard um, is applicable, essentially found that the material was A, stored, and B, stored in tiers because the material was on a storage rack. And, and so sort of just looks at the, the, you know, the plain facts and, and determines that the citation should be affirmed, the penalty should be affirmed. Also interesting, uh, the ALJ denied sort of Walmart asked for a six-month grace period um, to abate the measure here or abate the violation here. Um, that was denied essentially because they did not bring that up until the post-hearing stage. It's just a little bit of an interesting fact there. Um, but the ALJ you know, rules against Walmart at that level. Practically speaking, that's uh, just not reasonable because this is such a large operation nationwide with so many distribution centers, even one distribution center is so large. Right. just getting estimates, engineering uh, proposals for how to achieve abatement, and then installing implementation of any abatement methodology would be a lengthy, time-consuming, and expensive process, given the scale of what they were dealing with. So the period to abate becomes every bit as important as the manner of acceptable abatement. It needs to be worked out with good faith on, on all sides. Okay, so... Walmart appeals this to the Review Commission, and the Review Commission was fully seated. In other words, there's a three-person Review Commission. They're political appointees, and uh, they don't always, the, the Review Commission does not always have three commissioners installed at one time. Sometimes there's vacancies. This particular decision comes at a very interesting point in the history of the Review Commission. There were three seats, and all three were filled. And three uh, commissioners weighed in on this issue. Two of them formed a majority, Commissioners Sullivan and Lighthow, both of whom have been guests at different times on this show, the OSHA 3030. And then there was a dissenting opinion filed by Commissioner Atwood, who is also a thoughtful and um, insightful commissioner and has, has been on the commission for a long time. The majority by Commissioner Sullivan and Lyhow had basically stated an opinion that the standard has two sentences. So they, they bifurcate their analysis. And the first sentence says that materials handling shall be done in a manner that uh, preserves employees from any hazards. It's so overbroad, the commission says, as to be hortatory or, or precatory and that, that that's not meant to be a standard, because if it were a standard, it would be subject to challenge for its overbreadth or its vagueness, not telling us what to do in terms of uh, making sure that stacking was free of hazards. Which brings us, the commission said, to the next sentence, which is the sentence about material stacked in tiers shall be managed in such a way that uh, reduces hazards, such as interlocking, et cetera, stacking in a manner that reduces hazards. And there in that second sentence, the review commission said the term tier 
refers to material that's stacked one atop each other. So pallets stacked right on top of each other. That's right, Manus. They they note that the definition the tiers. There's no definition of tier in the standard. Um, so they end up looking uh, to the Webster's Dictionary definition of tier, which is a, a row, a rank, or layer of articles, and one or two, uh, uh, two or more rows arranged above one another. The commission really focuses on this word um, layer. They actually liken the de definition to tiers on a wedding cake, uh, which consists of you know individual layers sitting directly upon uh, the layer below. And so, so their their real focus on the word layer here is is something that the that the Second Circuit gets into, but that's how they ended up you know sort of looking at um, how tiers should be defined in this case. Right, and once they accept that the definition using the lay definition of tiered is material stacked one atop each other and not on shelves, then they came to the conclusion that the standard does not apply right. to the circumstances uh, under the inspection, and so so that would end the analysis. And they vacated the citation. That's right. Yeah, they, they vacated the citation in this case. The the dissent, as you mentioned, there was a dissent. Um, they pointed out that the pallets in, in the distribution center, they hold assorted merchandise often wrapped or bound together. This sort of you know made them containers or bundles, and therefore that you know the, the standard should apply, but obviously you know it was outvoted two to one in this case. Right. So let me go back to the language. Bags, containers, or bundles, that's what you're referring to, Taylor. Right. Bags, containers, or bundles that are stored in tiers shall be stacked, blocked, interlocked, and limited in height. Right. And so the dissent made the point that this may not be material that's tiered, but it's nevertheless uh, bundles. So the review commission, it, go, it goes by majority, and this was a two-to-one vote in this particular case. OSHA appealed the review commission's decision, and that brings it to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. That's right. And so the, the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, um, they stated that, like as, as, as I alluded to, that the Review Commission you know, essentially cherry-picked the word uh, layer uh, from the definition of tier. Um, and so that their focus on the word layer uh, sort of misguided them in, in, their, in their ruling. The court used the definition of tier from other dictionaries. Remember, Taylor, you mentioned that the Review Commission cited Webster's Dictionary. And the court said, you can use Webster's Dictionary. You can use other dictionaries and come up with slightly different answers. In one other dictionary that they cited, they noted that the term tier is slightly different and simply said that it's anything that's a series of rows placed one above the other would qualify as the definition of a tier. And if you use that definition, then certainly product that's on shelves or rails separated by space, and then another railing with another pallet and more product, would also qualify as a tier. It needn't be stacked one atop another, so long as those rails stacked up atop each other constituted a series of rows placed one above the other. So on that basis, they believed that the standard should be read broadly to include this sort of rail stackable system. Exactly. The, the, the commission or uh, the Second Circuit points out that, that the commission's definition of tiered here is, is sort of ignores other types of tiers. You know, essentially looking at it only as a wedding cake is, is a mistake because, you know, they talk about, you know, seating arrangements at sporting events, for example, or music venues with layers of seats independently supported, placed over each other with gaps in between them, exactly like how Walmart's materials were stored in this case. Well, Taylor, I've been at sporting venues where I think that attendees were actually stacked one atop another, <laughs> but I, I appreciate your point nevertheless. <laughs>
Uh, so the Second Circuit reviews this and they say, no, tears should be read broadly. It does appear that the standard would apply even with this rail system where pallets are placed directly on rails and there's space uh, up to the next rail. Uh, the, the next question then is the rest of the elements involved in ascertaining whether or not the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission has made its case for violation. Those, Taylor, we've talked about in many of our past episodes of the OSHA 3030. And I would point out that all of our prior episodes of the OSHA 3030, going back to 2013, are stored on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. And there's a lot of valuable information uh, in over 100, 100, almost 110 episodes so far. Uh, so check them out. And in many of them, we discuss what the four prima facie elements are that OSHA has to establish. The very first one is, is there a standard that applies? And that's the only thing that the review commission ever sat on. And then they evaluated it and said the standard doesn't apply. So they vacated the citation. So when the second circuit disagrees on that point, they note that the standard does apply and that OSHA had made its case on the first of four prima facie elements. But instead of uh, reinstating the citation, they note that the review commission never visited an analysis upon the other three prima facie elements. So the Second Circuit remanded the matter back to the Review Commission to evaluate the validity of the citation on the basis of those three other elements. They being, does the standard apply, number one? Number two, is there a, a gap between the practice that's being observed and the standard? In other words, is there an alleged violation of that standard for non-compliance? Uh, the third being, is there employee exposure uh, to this uh, allegedly violative condition? And then the fourth being, well, is there, if there's uh, employee exposure, what are the uh, elements of evidence that there was knowledge, either actual or constructive knowledge? Another subject which that fourth element alone, we've dedicated several episodes of the OSHA 3030s. So those are the four elements and the last three of which the Review Commission never visited. They vacated it on the strength of the first one and the second circuit said, now you need to go back and, and evaluate the other three to see if, even though the standard applies, there may nevertheless not be a violation because there may be a failure to, to establish those other three elements. Note, however, that we've talked about some of the factual evidence that goes to some of those elements, like employee knowledge or employer knowledge or uh, employer constructive knowledge, if there's employee knowledge, products having fallen in the past, manager, general manager asking for funding to implement some changes, all suggest uh, evidence that's probative at least. There are uh, elements of evidence in the record for the review commission to evaluate. Yeah, I, I'm in particular very interested to see where they come down on knowledge. I mean, as you mentioned, there's sort of some conflicting testimony. Some employees say that this not this isn't a problem. The general manager seems to think, you know, or at least give some testimony that it was. And so I think that that may be, you know, where the action lies here as, sure. as it moves forward. I'm interested in, in the second element, Taylor. I want to see what the evidence is that they failed to comply with the standard. Right. Was it not stacked in a manner that was safe uh, for for the material that was being handled. I mean, when you have pallets stacked on rails, the rails could support the weight, the pallets could support the weight of the product. They never stacked two pallets atop each other. They, they did have a, a policy for cordoning off. But as you point out, there was evidence that maybe it wasn't always observed by the employees and whether or not that constitutes a violation by the employer or not is a different matter. There would have to be not only employer knowledge, possibility of falling product, but knowledge that employees were not observing the 20 foot radius 
restricted zone. That that knowledge is a separate type of evidence. So, so I'm interested to see whether or not they can establish that this wasn't complied with. I also note that the uncontroverted evidence by the, the experts who worked at Walmart at that distribution center was that this was how everyone in the industry handled best practices for safe handling of materials uh, stacked in that manner, that no different precautions were taken in addition to the precautions taken by Walmart at that just Johnstown distribution center. That is evidence of maybe uh, what at least everyone would have looked in the industry at as looking like compliance. It'll be an interesting decision if the review commission does indeed get to revisit those last three elements. Yeah. So in light of this, what are the takeaway items from the Walmart case in Johnstown, New York? What should employers do to change their, their practices in light of this decision? Yeah. Well, I think the first one you just hit on, you know, that you know, material stored stored on pallets on shelves or support rails is now subject, you know, based on the Second Circuit decision to OSHA's materials handling and storage standard. And, you know, as you pointed out, this is a prevailing industry practice, not just at Walmart, but across the industry. And, and so this is, I think, the big takeaway from this case um, is that you're now subject to, to that uh, specific OSHA standard. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right, Taylor. Some would argue that they've always been subject to the standard and this decision merely proves that. But as you say, this was the industry best practice. At least that's the uncontroverted evidence that was entered into this case is that every sophisticated uh, participant in managing warehouse distribution centers, et cetera, was doing it in the same similar manner. So, so now, at least for those sophisticated participants in the industry or the, in those sectors, they would view this as a call to maybe change their treatment of the materials handling standard, section 176. The second thing, uh, what, what this implies is that now this sort of stacking system must uh, incorporate blocking or interlocking in a manner that keeps product stable and secure from being slid over by a forklift by accident or from collapse, an entire pallet being pushed so that it is now off one of the rails and falls through. That stacking, blocking, and interlocking methods have to be employed to make sure that those pallets are secure and stable. That's right. Um, this case also lends itself um, to, to the takeaway um, that employers should cordon off space uh, below uh, during a material handling task, um, such as you know the pallet above. You know, you know, Walmart makes the argument that they had sort of this, you know, 20 foot zone of danger around the area where pallets were being moved. But, you know, as I, as I briefly mentioned, you know, no evidence to support that this work rule was ever enforced. That, that sort of leads to an additional, uh, you know, takeaway here, which is to always document your enforcement of work rules. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. And, and remember, I, I think the best practice would be to cordon off the aisle in which the forklift is operating, but also the aisle adjacent to it where workers could be picking product out of the, the pick level. And product can be pushed from one aisle over. This happens with enough frequency that it, it should be predictable that both aisles should be cordoned off during these operations. Finally, I think it just makes sense intuitively that employers in these sectors who are engaged in any kind of warehousing or distribution or stacking of, of material should uh, make sure to inspect the pallet loads to make sure that they're, they're packaged safe, safely and that they, the pallets isn't laden with material that exceeds the pallet load or the rail capacity isn't exceeded across the entire shelving line and that, that the whole system is to capacity 
as well. And to, to inspect that periodically and uh, to consistent with your point, Taylor, to take notes and keep records that that inspection was done and that there all of the, the shelving was done within tolerance limits for, for the loads that they were designed to carry. But that, that's what employers should do. That's the last word on today's OSHA 3030, right on time. We got another minute left. Remember that the entire library of prior episodes, including this episode, within a day or so, will be stored at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. The other thing I'd say is this program will be rebroadcast as a podcast within a day or so. Please subscribe to the podcast so that for any episodes that you might miss, you can catch it on your commute in or out. And, uh, and you can also watch it your desktop on YouTube, this slide with the slides, uh, the video, and the sound. And that, that can be found on our website, khlaw.com, or going straight to YouTube. You can just do a search on OSHA 3030 or Monish Wrath, and it'll come up. Same with as a podcast, favorite podcast platform. Remember our request, this podcast series or webinar series that's been going on for nine years. We're in our 10th year now. Complimentary to the OSHA 3030 community only asks one thing in exchange, and that's what, that when you get an email announcing the next program, please continue to forward it on to three new people, people responsible for safety and health, either safety and health professionals or folks in your office of in-house counsel at your organization and at other organizations so that the program can continue to persist for another 10 years, adding great value and in, in information to the OSHA 3030 community. Thank you for doing that when you get the next email. The last thing I'd say is our next program will be scheduled about 30 days from now, November 16th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So November 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Remember our sister programs, if your organization engages in activities that are subject to compliance with TSCA, REACH, or FIFRA, remember that we have sister programs. TSCA, the next one will be scheduled on December 14 at 1 p.m. REACH, the REACH 3030 will be scheduled on December 14th at 10 a.m. Eastern. So slight time change for those two programs. And uh, stay tuned for the next FIFRA 3030 program. And if you have questions that you'd like to form as a topic for FIFRA 3030, just shoot us an email. Well, remember to stick around if you're part of the live audience for our Off the Record program. On behalf of everyone at Keller and Heckman who worked hard to make this program happen, colleague and friend Taylor Johnson and myself, thank you all for participating in this episode of the OSHA 3030. We look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe.